Hello, everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th, when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections, and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, July the 21st, and you are very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today, all dressed up in their board shorts and flip-flops and covered up in Factor 50, are our political team of Pat Leahy, Jennifer Bray and Harry McGee. Hi, gang. Morning. Hi, Hugh. Bonjour, Hugh. Uh, given the kind of general schools out for summer vibe this week, we did think today we'd do one of our Ask Me Anything podcasts as a way of wrapping up some of the loose ends and the big questions that have come up in politics over the last few months. And we're going to get to those in a minute. But first of all, Pat, we should mark the passing of Des O'Malley, one of the most significant political figures of his generation, whose death has just been announced. Uh, yeah, death of Des O'Malley announced uh, this morning. Um, he was 82, but had been out of... I suppose, frontline politics since he retired from the Dáil in 2002. He had an amazingly long career, was elected to the Dáil first in 1968 and soon after that was sat at the cabinet table as chief whip and he became then a minister for justice during the arms uh, crisis after just uh, two years uh, in the Dáil. And he is, I think, the last of that arms crisis generation, the last living uh, link to it, which was, you know, obviously a tumultuous time in Irish politics and, um, and, and decisions taken at that time by the government, uh, in Dublin were crucial as, uh, in, in, in terms of what happened subsequently and how the Northern conflict played out on the island, um, as a whole. He was a lifelong opponent from that time of Charles Hahi, and he was squeezed out of Fianna Fáil gradually and then suddenly after Hahi became leader. So he, he was expelled from the party, he didn't resign, he was expelled from the party in uh, 1984, for, uh, famously for conduct unbecoming. He went on to... Uh, he went on to found the Progressive Democrats, and uh, I, I suppose that was the the second of the you know the great impacts that he had in Irish politics. Lots of people go through lengthy careers without making any sort of a mark. Um, Desi O'Malley made those two crucial interventions: first as Minister for Justice during the arms crisis, and then as the founder and first leader of the PDs. And it was the PDs that you know they set out to break the mould. They said of Irish politics, and to a large degree. They did um, entering coalition with Fianna Fáil in 1989. And while that seems unremarkable now, at the time there was ructions in Fianna Fáil. It was a massive step for the party to take to go into coalition for what was um, the first time ever. And I think that the success of the PDs and their participation in that first 1989 to 1991 Coalition, but also the impact that they had on Fianna Fáil in policy terms changed Irish politics for the next quarter century, convincing Charlie McCreevy and through him Bertie Ahern of that tax cutting pro business 
um, economic model that turned into the uh, turned into the, the the Celtic Tiger was one of the things that uh, turned into the Celtic Tiger. So um, you know, look, we're only I suppose a very brief summary, but Des O'Malley was somebody who had an immense influence on Irish politics and on uh, on the history of the country. And if you want to find out more of him, there's going to be a lot more on irishtimes.com over the course of the day and in tomorrow's print edition also. We leave it there, but on to our, our, our first question. And in a way, it touches on some of the things which Pat was talking about in Des O'Malley's career, but brings them uh, bang up to date. So our first question is from Owen, and it's as follows. It is taken as given that Fianna Fáil faces an existential threat. However, with the largest number of councillors, senators and TDs and a strong heritage and party brand, one wonders whether reports of that death are somewhat exaggerated. It was only a couple of years ago that Mary Lou's tenure was being called a potential failure following a portion Fein showing in the presidential and local elections. What are the team's predictions for where Fianna Fáil ends up after the next election? 20 to 30 seats, 30 to 40 or what? Harry, I'm going to put this question to you because you have a an interesting piece in today's newspaper about uh, a group of pro Michal Martin um, uh, TDs and senators in the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party pushing back against some of the internal criticism of him. And that, of course, ties in with exactly those existential questions which Owen raises there. Yeah, because uh, a lot of the narrative at Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party meetings, especially the negative narrative, has been surrounding the leadership of Michal Martin with his critics saying that Leo Varadkar was running rings around him. Now, that might have been true for a while at the beginning of this government's term. Michal Martin had a very uncertain start, uh, but I think he has improved uh, since then. I think the difficulty for Fianna Fáil is a, a broader one. The party has become lost in terms of what it is and uh, where it's where it, where it's at in Irish politics and what it stands for. Uh, I think that partly is a uh, symptom of it being in government uh, for so long. It's uh, Carew uh, objectives of 1926-1927 were, some, were somehow lost uh, during long periods of power and Fianna Fáil kind of lost touch with some of its founding ideals and became known as the party of uh, government. And of course, it was also felled uh, by uh, something that happens to a lot of uh, parties when they're in government for too long, uh, the uh, taint and the corrosive whip uh, of uh, corruption and that uh, ran uh, like a virus to the party uh, during the 80s and uh, certainly into the early 1990s. Uh, we're also looking at a, at a much changed society. Uh, I was looking at the stats for a by-election that was held in 1982 recently uh, in which Fine Gael bet the uh, Fianna Fáil uh, uh, person, but both parties got 80% of the vote between them and that was in the constituency of Dublin West which is a capital constituency uh, that kind of percentage would be inconceivable now. So what we're seeing with Fianna Fáil is a long term demise. The party's fortunes have fluctuated up and down over the years and the same indeed could be said uh, for Fine Gael and perhaps to a lesser extent for the Labour Party. The established parties have been on a long term downward uh, trajectory uh, trajectory, sorry. Um, so, uh, where is Fianna Fáil left at, at the moment? I mean, the party expected to do well in the last uh, general election. Uh, they had about 45 seats going into the election. Uh, they were hoping to win as many as 50. And on an optimistic day, they were also uh, expecting perhaps to edge closer to 60. Uh, but in the uh, event, they performed very poorly uh, indeed. 
And I think the party has to kind of realise that it's no longer the big behemoth of Irish politics, that in the medium term, at least, uh, it's going to be a a small to medium-sized party. And it's going to have to find uh, itself a niche. It's going to have to find itself a purpose. And that purpose will no longer be the catch-all populist, you know, we're the party for everybody uh, 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 trope that that served it so well for many generations. It's going to have to find uh, uh, something that's more discreet, uh, that's perhaps slightly more compartmentalised and will have to um, uh, tailor its expectations in relation to seat numbers. So in terms of how many seats is going to win in the next election, if it continues to flatline as it has, it could end up with uh, less than 30. Uh, but if it manages to somehow revive its fortunes between now and the next, next election, uh, it could actually up its seat number. But that's not the important thing. You have to look at the long-term trend. And unless the party addresses those fundamental uh, existential issues in relation to what the party is, what it stands for, who it stands for, uh, it's not going to go anywhere in Irish politics in the long term. Uh, Jen, uh, listening to Harry there, I recall a column, I think last week from Fintan O'Toole in the Irish Times. Now, I don't think there are many people in Fianna Fáil who would look to Fintan for advice on, uh, on, on redefining the future of the party. He's not really noted as a fan of the party, but his critique, I think, was interesting in terms of what uh, Harry's saying there. Because Fintan's argument was that, forget about 1927 and 1928 and the founding fathers, that the purpose of Fianna Fáil for a very long time was the holding of power for as long as possible, and then the dispensation of power and privilege. And whether or not you agree entirely with that, and I don't, I think it was an important factor in the hold which Fianna Fáil had as the largest party over Irish politics for most of the history of the state. And when that particular raison d'etre has disappeared for good, as I think Harry is saying it has, and Fianna Fáil just becomes another medium or perhaps small to medium-sized party within a fragmented landscape... I do have some difficulty knowing what is its unique selling point. Yeah, and I actually would agree with um, Fintan on that point that, you know, I think for many in that party in Fianna Fáil, the pursuit of power has been one of the biggest motivating factors down through the decades. Um, that's played out in, in various different ways. Um, and the desire to hold on to that power once once you have it. Um, so, yeah, I would I would agree with that. But if you're talking about, you know, their raison d'etre, uh, you know, there's a couple of things really. There is a perception among some people in Fianna Fáil, uh, a fear almost, that they were always viewed as obviously as a very strong Republican party. And there's a fear now that actually Fine Gael are, are stealing their clothes somewhat and that Leo Varadkar is coming out somewhat more strongly uh, on this issue and that his contributions and debates on issues like a United Ireland, not that they're taken more seriously, but certain that they they generate and they grab the headlines. And I think that really, really upsets large portions of the Fianna Fáil party, including the grassroots, um, especially in the last couple of years uh, or since last summer, since Fianna Fáil um, uh, came into power with Fine Gael. So that's one of, one of the issues I think they have to address is what is their position? How strongly do they want to address this issue? Because obviously we know Michal Martin has his shared island unit. He has, you know, set out that he wants to kind of take a more nuanced approach to dealing with politics in the North. Um, whereas Leo Varadkar talks, I think, in much straighter terms or much more kind of headline grabbing terms about a border poll and issues like that. So I think there's a bit of unrest in the party about 
that. So, you know, that's one of their identity issues I think they need to sort out. And secondly, if housing is the biggest issue, the biggest political issue, um, aside from the pandemic, obviously, uh, being the most important pressing concern at the moment in terms of public health, if that is the biggest issue, the question has to be asked, how how much of an inroad will Fianna Fáil have made by the time they get to the changeover of Taoiseach, the rotating Taoiseach? So when Michal Martin hands over the, the top office to, to Leo Varadkar, how many more houses will have been provided across the spectrum? And I think given the delay because of the pandemic, it's fair enough to presume and expect that it won't be significant enough for them to be able to take any credit for that. So even in terms of if you look at Fianna Fáil of the past, they pride themselves in, in their track record in providing housing and providing social housing uh, across Dublin, across the country. Will they be able to reclaim that part of their identity? I don't think so, not in time, because there is an acceptance in government that this crisis probably will take longer than the five years or the four four remaining years that we have. So if those two issues are taken in hand, I think we, you see kind of two specific parts of their identity crisis. And on the question of how many seats will they have at the next general election, I just have stopped giving predictions because every time I gave one, they were wrong, except Ivana in the by-elections, the first time I've ever been right. So hold on to that one. But I would say... Um, I would say probably on current trends, you could expect them to come in below where they are now. So maybe in the early 30s. Right. And that's interesting that you mentioned uh, the by-election because our next question, which I'm going to put to you, Pat, is from Richard. And he refers to our, our, our own opinion poll before the election. Richard says as follows. Two weeks out from the by-election, it showed that it was more likely a Fine Gael versus Labour, uh, with Sinn Féin running a distant third. Had there been no poll, would the Sinn Féin versus Fine Gael narrative have been had held stronger and maybe have had an impact on where the votes went? And as a broader question, he asks, should polls be banned during election campaigns as they become the story more than more than policy? Um, I'll answer the first question uh, or the second question first and say, no, opinion polls should not be banned during election campaigns, in my view. Um, I understand the arguments that the, the that the election uh, campaign often becomes dominated by that horse race element uh, uh, of it, which is, of course, measured by opinion polls. Um, but, you know, going back to the the preface for that part of the question when he's saying that if there hadn't been our opinion poll in Dublin Bay South, that the narrative of Sinn Féin and Fine Gael would have held stronger. But we, we, we know that that wasn't how people on the ground were thinking as they were measured two weeks before the uh, election. They weren't viewing it as a Sinn Féin versus uh, as a Sinn Féin versus Fine Gael contest. No matter how much people said it was, that wasn't the view of people on the ground. And the value, I think, of opinion polls is to measure how people think, uh, uh, to measure what people are thinking on the ground at a point in time. Of course, they shouldn't be the be-all and end-all of campaign coverage. And, you know, I think it's one of the things that we talk about and we try and achieve during election campaigns is to focus not just on the horse race, but also on the issues and what people are people are thinking uh, and and talking about on the ground but i don't th- i think it's a Pat, do we have any data at, do we have any data at all either here or elsewhere on whether opinion polls do or don't have uh, have an effect on the on the not ultimate that outcome? i'm aware of you but uh, you know i think that just like campaign events are you know have an effect 
on, um, on, on effect on party support. So opinion polls do. They're part of the mix of things that make up an, uh, an election campaign. I'm of the view that our role is to tell people what is going on in so, uh, as much as we can. And opinion polls are uh, a, tool in, uh, a tool in doing that. I mean, you can argue that people shouldn't pay so much attention to opinion polls, um, but it seems to me to be uh, yeah, several steps too far to talk about banning them uh, entirely during a, uh, during a campaign. Ultimately, the polls reflect what is happening on the ground, and I think it is better that people are, uh, are, are appraised of that. One final point, I suppose, um, about the effect on the, 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 the Sinn Féin vote. I suppose... Uh, I think what that the poll might have done in the course of the by-election campaign was to signal to Sinn Féin that it was uh, that it wasn't going to do very well, and that gave them notice to put in this massive get-out-the-vote operation, which they did in those areas in which Sinn Féin is strong, and thus uh, and thus their vote held up. But that's just, uh, uh, I suppose, speculation on my part. We'll move on to another question now. This one from Kieran. Um, do you think that plans for a referendum on a constitutional right to housing will come to fruition within the lifetime of this government? Harry. <laughs> um, I, I think there. I think there is a will. I, I, I think it's a difficult one to answer. Um, I, I think that uh, if uh, Sinn Féin are in government after the next election, we definitely have a, a constitutional uh, referendum on on housing. I think there's probably more reluctance. I think there might be some language uh, uh, in obeisance to the Greens uh, uh, from Fine Gael and from Fianna Fáil saying that we're going to try to move uh, towards a constitutional referendum. Whether it actually happens or not in real politic is more difficult to predict because I think there is uh, more uh, unspoken uh, um, opposition to it uh, within the ranks of uh, both uh, parties, and uh, I sense that that both think both think uh, that uh, running a kind of a parallel uh, referendum in relation to housing uh, will have a, uh, a detrimental impact uh, on the other housing policies, notably housing for all, uh, which is the uh, which is the big ticket uh, housing policy from government, uh, which is due to be published. Uh, next week. So, also, what impact would would a constitutional referendum have to actual people in li- living in this country right now? Thank you for asking me all the easy questions this morning, Hugh. I really much appreciate it. That is something to which I have not given very much uh, thought. I, th- I think perhaps, and it, this is just a, a an instinctual reaction. Uh, that its impact would be more symbolic and gestural rather than practical. I don't think that um, that if a referendum were passed that somebody could walk down uh, to their local uh, local government office and say, I have a constitutional right to housing, uh, produce me one unit of uh, accommodation now. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think there'll be much material difference in the way that housing is uh, administered. But I think that it would be important perhaps from a democratic point of view, from a constitutional point of view, to have a right like that enshrined and to, to make sure that 
that it was a priority aspiration uh, for each government, given that it had constitutional backing. But I think in a practical sense, I don't think it would make all that much difference. I bet you. Actually, I bet yeah, you Jen, I have happen. my reservations about... Uh, well... Yeah, oh, OK, thanks, Pat. Jen, what do you... I mean, I have these reservations about these kind of gestural pieties to, to things, as opposed to concrete rights, which I think is really what a constitution should be about. Yeah, um, I did a bit of digging around on this, actually, because I think the... This one went to my head. No, in fairness, it is important. Um, and and as Harry pointed out, that there is a commitment in the programme for government on this. Um, though there's no detail really on what it would mean. And the question about like, what does, if, if you did enshrine this and change the constitution, etc., um, what does it actually mean? I think like there seems to be agreement that it doesn't mean that everybody just automatically gets a house tomorrow. And that's the end of it. I think it means basically that there's a concept or um, an agreed understanding of what adequate housing is. So you're basically putting in the constitution that um, concept. So it means basically affordability or security of tenure or people having a proper standard of housing, as opposed to, like Harry said, going in and being given a house in, in the morning. It's an accepted standard. It's an accepted uh, set of policies. Now, there is a push from some people within uh, Fianna Fáil, there's a, there's a bunch of senators I know who are pushing uh, to have this basically, um, you know, moved on uh, by the time the change of Taoiseach comes around. Uh, and, you know, there's also a UN treaty which also commits countries to providing certain rights on housing. So it isn't that out there. Like when people think about well, what would it actually change? Um, you know, it's it's about setting a standard, really. Um, and there are countries that do uh, have this uh, similar right to housing in their constitution, Spain, Belgium and Sweden. So it's not, you know, completely new thinking either. Um, I do think there is a push uh, within Fianna Fáil, particularly amongst some, a certain group of senators. And I would expect that they will keep at that and, uh, until the change of um, rotation of Taoiseach comes around. Jen, while you're on your toes there answering the questions, I'm going to put another one to you here. It's from, it's from Niall and it's as follows. It seems like all of the big three parties are putting the Dublin Bay South uh, by-election in their rearview mirror, Fianna Fáil to a lesser extent than Fine Gael and Sinn Féin. But has there been any internal mutterings around Varadkar being ousted or Sinn Féin underperforming not national polls or even among the Greens and the Sock Dems for their poor showing? So I suppose overall the question is there has been this big focus on Fianna Fáil in the, in the aftermath of the election, but very little on the other parties. Have there been any aftershocks or stirrings in the, in the wake of it? Well, to be completely honest with you I have been on holidays for the last two weeks welcome back <laughs> thanks and uh, Get to work. I didn't I didn't pay a blind bit of attention to the news and it was bliss. Um, but um, of course, I'm catching up since yesterday. Um, I, do, I, I would agree with that. I think there is kind of a move to kind of, well, it's a by-election. By-elections aren't the same as general elections. This was a very unique constituency. Therefore, uh, we, you know, we kind of knew how it would play out. I think obviously there's a lot of disappointment um, within Fine Gael about their result, given how close they came. Um, but in the end, obviously, Ivana had it. It's, it's, it's an interesting one. Like, I don't really... Like Fianna Fáil, to a lesser extent, yes. Have there been mutterings around Varadkar? Not yet. And if if I'm completely honest about what I think has happened in Fine Gael, I think there is a, a real anxiety in Fine Gael about this um, Garda investigation into the leaking of the GP contract. If there's any danger signs ahead about Varadkar's um, tenure as, as leader, I think it lies there. Um, a lot of people in the party expect that to go nowhere, but some people are very anxious that it, that it might go somewhere. And if it does result in charges being brought, for example, then obviously you're into extremely tricky territory. And I get the sense that everybody's kind of just waiting for that to come to fruition and 
you know, for a resolution in, in that regard. That's where I see the real danger uh, for Varadkar. But in terms of James Gagan, um, I think because he came so close and but I think because Ivana had such a, a standing nationally over the last couple of decades for the various different issues she's campaigned on, it wasn't that much. I think if they'd lost to Sinn Féin, it would have been a bigger, um, I think it would have been a bigger post-mortem for them. And, you know, we talked a little bit about the poll earlier on and how that narrative about Sinn Féin and Fine Gael didn't really play out in the poll. Like Pat said, that uh, that already was not playing out on the ground. People who were campaigning were reporting higher levels of support for Labour than Sinn Féin in very many areas. And that poll just highlighted that really, rather than changing any course of it. So even for Sinn Féin, I think the poll probably actually made it easier for them because there was no big shock on the day of the election that they'd been expected to get it. Because we knew probably more than likely they weren't going to. So I suppose all in all, not the... now. Like I said, I've been off for two weeks. So maybe there's been a massive postmortem that I've missed, but uh, uh, not to the best of my knowledge. I mean, the one I ask, and I'd ask this to any of you, is the one that strikes me might have potential for the future in terms of trouble is the Greens, where the internal tensions have become a lot quieter over the last while. But I'm presuming they haven't gone away. Uh, and it's not beyond the bounds of possibility, uh, Pat, that, you know, something might blow up in terms of government policy on the agenda over the next over the next 12 months that might cause real problems. For the them. danger point for the Greens is when, I think, when the measure the climate action measures are given concrete form over the next two to three years when it becomes apparent what is going to have to be done in concrete terms in terms of home heating uh, in terms of transport in terms of sort of taxes that are going to have to inevitably be put on both uh, fossil fuels on petrol and diesel on new petrol and diesel burning cars all those all those sort of things when 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 that becomes concrete and Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael backbenchers realize what they're uh, what they have been signed up to i think that is where the danger point arrives for the greens that having been said let us look at where they are uh, at the moment they have got if you said to the greens in those debates that they had about entering government before they made the party made the decision to enter government by let us remind ourselves a fairly hefty majority um, if you had told them that they would get all that they have gotten so far on climate action i think uh, the majority would probably have been bigger um so what matters for the Greens? The Greens are not trying to appeal to as broad a cross-section as Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and nowadays Sinn Féin are. They're trying to appeal to the people who believe that climate action should be the first priority of the government. There's enough people out there to win, uh, to maintain the seats for that the Greens currently have. And the test for them at the end of this government will be, have the Greens delivered in government on those things that matter to their voters, climate action being uh, first and foremost above those. And I think that many of the internal debates that the party has had, the internal rows that the party has had over the last year have led to the departure of many of the people who believe that the Greens agenda should be broader and more uh, and more influenced by what it pleases to call people social justice at this um, uh, at this stage. So I think for the Greens, delivery on climate action is the most important thing for their electoral survival. But I think the big roadblock on that will be the practical outworking of those measures. I don't know what you think, Harry. 
Well, uh, first of all, let me commend you on your David Hasselhoff um, haircut pat this morning. <laughs> it has added much uh, to, uh, to, to the image that we're trying to project in terms of the Irish Times political podcast. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I, I think uh, I think Claire Byrne was a very good candidate and she impressed uh, the people from the other parties to whom I've been talking were very impressed by her composure and by uh, the way in which she handled her campaign. I think one of the effects that our uh, opinion poll might have had is that it actually focused minds in relation to uh, how they were going to vote. And some of the votes that she might uh, have expected to win might have migrated over to Ivana Bacic on the back of the poll where everybody likes to back a winner and people wanted a certain outcome and perhaps saw that Ivana Bacic was the person uh, who might be in a position to provide that outcome uh, rather than the uh, the Green candidate. I think a lot of the tension in the Green Party has died down, to be honest with you. I, I think the party had a very rocky eight or nine months uh, uh, between the formation of government in July and uh, certainly in the spring when they had the rows over Hazel Chew's uh, Shannon nomination and over CETA. Uh, but it does seem to have died down considerably uh, since then and the party has been rowing together in huge uni- unison. I agree completely with Pat's analysis in relation to the breaking point, if there is a breaking point for the Greens. It's when the big climate change policies, when it comes to implement them, if that does not uh, muster up, uh, it's going to provide huge difficulties uh, for the party in relation to its continuation in government. When you say if it doesn't muster up, it means if 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 the government if if the government if the Greens partners in government don't do what they've committed yeah, I mean, to. If you go back to two thousand and seven, the Fianna Fáil Green uh, um, coalition, especially in two thousand and nine, when they rewrote their program for government, sure, Fianna Fáil uh, promised uh, uh, the Greens the devil and all. <laughs> they promised them everything, but they gave them nothing. You know, there was no implementation. So you had all these amazing policies in relation to climate change, uh, in relation to energy, uh, in relation to civil liberties, in, in relation to, to many of the core green issues. Uh, but the difficulty was, was that they were down on paper, but they were actually never translated into action. So by the time uh, the uh, government was changed uh, in 2011, the Greens had achieved certain things, but uh, the, the long list of of things they wanted to be achieved were not achieved simply because uh, Fianna Fáil just allowed those things to play themselves out. And that's something the Greens would be have to be very vigilant about uh, in coalition with two bigger parties, especially parties uh, of the nature of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. Get the inside track in marketing with the Inside Marketing Podcast. Every fortnight, we talk to some of the leaders of the Irish marketing industry and beyond. Whether it's the death of the cookie, the future of search, or exploring the world of gaming. Find out what it means for marketing in Ireland. Follow Inside Marketing to get Inside Marketing. Brought to you by Dentsu Ireland and the Irish Times Media Solutions. Available on all major podcast platforms. We'll move on to another question, Jen. This question's from Anthony. So he says... The government is committed to a programme of borrowing for the next four years, on top of God knows how much that they've already uh, run up in the pandemic and from long-standing bonfires like the Children's Hospital. Will this level of borrowing see a party of fiscal responsibility um, run candidates at the next election? Right now, no party is objecting to this. Is the electorate similarly relaxed about living beyond our means? Asks Anthony. Um interesting question. I think I, I wouldn't say the electorate are 
relaxed about living beyond our means. But I think there's just an acceptance that because of the pandemic, it's been such an extraordinary time and the demands, the financial demands that have come with it have been kind of eye-watering, I suppose. Um, and there's an acceptance that all of those various supports that um, were put in place, whether you're talking about the pandemic unemployment payment or the employment wage subsidy scheme, that they were obviously exceptional, but also extremely necessary. Um, it's a really timely question, actually, because just this morning or around about now, um, the, the Minister for Public Expenditure, Michael McGrath, is that cabinet kind of issuing a warning about our, our spending. And he's going to tell the ministers that basically since the start of the pandemic, um, spending will have topped uh, 30 billion uh, on those various different measures. And I think he will talk about the importance of winding down the various different schemes that I mentioned. Um, now, the intention was to continue borrowing and to continue uh, keeping these schemes up and running and then to, to start tapering them off um, from September. Um, now, we know that the pandemic unemployment payment uh, has been been already closed new entrance and that from September was due to be cut by 50 euro um, in different uh, phases until eventually it was the same as the, the job seekers rate, which uh, is 203 euros. Um, the big problem I see now for the government is that there was an expectation that once we got the vaccination program underway uh, and if it hit the targets, which in fairness it is, um, that we will get to a stage in the pandemic where the, the vaccines would outrun the virus uh, and the the plan appears to have been wind down those payments, um, cut the costs involved, uh, vaccinate everybody, and then we'll be in a position where we don't necessarily have to worry about it. But obviously now we see this thing has taken another twist. We have the Delta variant, um, and if you look at the experience in other European countries, absolutely stellar increases in cases. You know, really. You know, we're talking about 160%, 200% in European countries week on week, some European countries, I should say. Um, and obviously, you would have a question about the government's plan, their, their, their financial plan, if the, if the aim was to take everybody off these payments. But if we're actually heading into a, a proper fourth wave that will peak in August or September, how does that marry with their plans to, you know, not allow new entrants for the PUP to take to take businesses off those supports? Um, and I think they have a big question there about the spending, maybe something that they hadn't anticipated. And um, the in terms of other parties and and being set up or you know in fiscally responsible parties, I mean we have the parties that we have now. I don't see any sign of any new party coming onto the pitch. Of course, it can always happen. It's very difficult for new parties, of course, for a whole variety of reasons from funding onwards. Um, it's difficult for the opposition because they can't be seen to be calling. Well, they don't want to be seen to be calling for cuts in payments. So they have to call for, you know, supports for workers to be continued and extended. But that all costs money. Um, so, yeah, you know what? I actually wouldn't be surprised to see a party emerge, but whether they gain any traction or not at a time when the supports are needed is another question. I mean, it's an interesting question, Pat, on the day that we're marking the passing of uh, of Des O'Malley because he is the leader of what was probably the most successful political movement in Ireland with that background, you know, looking for um, a certain type of a certain type of fiscal orthodoxy to be implemented in Ireland in the 1980s and 1990s, which was not being uh, supported by any of the existing parties in government or outside of it. Seems unlikely to me that you're going to see something similar happen. No, again. and it is structurally more difficult to set up a new party now because of the state funding, the, the, the generous state funding that the parties get um from in related to their electoral performance so it's very difficult for a new party and you see you know the struggles that a new party like AIN2 has had now they've established a foothold for themselves but 
um, uh, you know, and of course they have Dáil and some council representation, but it's much more difficult for them to build up the sort of infrastructure organisationally and financially that, say, Des O'Malley did in the early days of the Progressive Democrats. And those, the conditions for the success of the early uh, the early years of the Progressive Democrats, a sense that the country was being, uh, you know, chaotically managed economically and fiscally, a rump of uh, TDs from one of the big parties, a charismatic leader, uh, you know, none of those none of those things uh are are appear to be likely to uh to you know to be present for the formation of a new spot, a new party and i think it is a flaw in the way that our current uh system of support for parties etc is um is is organized that it makes it difficult for um uh, for for a new party to gain a foothold, even the uh, the social democrats we see who have dull representation, they've got well known people. They really have you know found it difficult in a more fractured archipelago of opposition parties to get a uh, to get a foothold and, uh, and 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 really stand out amongst uh, amongst the pap so uh, pack so i wouldn't be optimistic about a new party being set up but but just to follow up briefly on that pat one of the things i thought what well, i thought was striking about the pds was that while most of their senior personnel their big political beasts came from formerly from Fianna Fáil, they found most electoral advantage from people who had previously voted for Fine Gael. And in a way, the PDs can be seen as a rebellion against the Garrett Fitzgerald generation of, of Fine Gael and a, a return to a more right of centre economic uh, policy. And a lot of, there's an implicit criticism in that question that Fine Gael, which is the natural home, I suppose, for that kind of fiscal approach, uh, isn't doing what it's supposed to do. And it was the hope of many people in Fine Gael when during Leo Varadkar's election camp, uh, leadership election campaign, when he famously spoke about looking after the people who get up in the morning, that this was a, uh, you know, that this was a return to those sort of those sort of values. But if you recall that election campaign, Simon Coveney, who let us not forget, won more more votes amongst grassroots members than did uh, Leo Varadkar. He ran appealing to that other Fine Gael tradition, the social democratic tradition of Gareth Fitzgerald and Alan Jukes or whatever. I suppose the truth is that with two big catch-all parties like Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael dominating our politics for so long, and as Harry referenced earlier in another context, you look back to elections in the 80s when they were getting 80-85% of the vote be, uh, between them, that par- parties that are that big... All political parties are coalitions, but parties that are that big must necessarily be broad political uh, coalitions, especially when ideologically and in terms of the policies that they pursued in government, there was little uh, there was little between them, at least in uh, in in economic terms. So um, uh, so. Uh, you know, I think that that tradition exists in Fine Gael. You're right about that. But it exists alongside another tradition, just as it exists and it existed in the Fianna Fáil of Charlie, uh, Charlie McCreevy. 
And there's also that, I suppose, uh, a tradition in Fianna Fáil, the social democratic tradition in Fianna Fáil that Micheál Martin would tend to hark back to. Right. Uh, I just wonder whether all that's sustainable in a new fragmented political environment, but that might be a, a question for another day. Another question here from James Whelan. And James actually has a comment first, which I'm going to read because he says that the podcast has kept me, that's James, kept me real company over the last 18 months since the election, especially in the dark days of January when I was downbeat with no end of restrictions in sight. It has become a highlight of my week. Having a free student subscription to the app and website has been extremely useful in getting more detail and scope of what's going on more than any other Irish news source. And I intend to subscribe once I graduate this year. You're really speaking our language here, James. And a special word, he says to Jack Horgan Jones, I found that his analysis of politics has a ringing clarity that I think is brillant and really connects. Excellent job, exclamation mark. Why don't we get more emails like yeah, this? Yeah, we clearly won't <laughs> be passing that message on to, to, to We man. won't be yeah. passing that message on to Jack Horgan Jones, but thank you for, for the rest of it indeed, James. And James's question is as follows. My question stems from the UK local elections in May, where commentators there picked up the pattern that parties dealing with the pandemic and in charge of the vaccine rollout were rewarded in England, Scotland and Wales. Yet here in Ireland, the party holding the Taoiseach's office is in a slump with Fianna Gael, the government beneficiaries. Boris Johnson has his levelling up agenda. Nicola Sturgeon has her independence campaign. Do you think lack of clarity and vision for the country have played a major role in Fianna Fáil's recession? Uh, this sounds very like a question that I had to answer about half an hour ago. Well, let, 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 me, let me just pick out the bit which I think is different, which is that it has been remarked across the Western world, I think, not just in the UK, that government parties have done pretty well in the wake of the, in the, in the, wake of the pandemic. And that seems less true here. Yeah, well, this, this actually relates to the, to the so-called uh, vaccine bounce. And I mean... Um, Boris Johnson in the UK went from being the villain of the piece when the country was uh, reeling out of control in 2020 uh, with one leap. Our hero was free in 2021 uh, because of the uh, success of the vaccination programme over there, the perceived uh, success of the vaccination programme. It did give a considerable bounce uh, to the Tory uh, government. But the proof of the pudding of, of that was in local elections and in a by-election um, in Hartlepool um, in, in the northeast of England, which was formerly part of the Labour Red Wall territory, uh, but w- which was won by uh, the Tories. And this was seen as the QED of, of uh, the success of the vaccination programme. I think the reality uh, was slightly more complex than that. And I think there was a subsequent by-election uh, a couple of weeks later in a Blue Wall constituency in the southeast of England, uh, which the Liberal Democrats won and which maybe punched some holes into the blue wall, but also uh, undermined the, 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 uh, the narrative uh, that, uh, that there was a huge uh, vaccine bounce. But there, has, there was a vaccine bounce. It's just the magnitude of it uh, that is probably a matter for a debate. It hasn't been as uh, apparent uh, here. Uh, Pat coined a very uh, nice phrase during the by-election uh, in Dublin Bay South, in which he described the satisfied suburbs. Um, I don't know if it's an original Pat Leahy uh, TM uh, 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 quote, but I, I certainly liked it when I when I read it. And I, I think the satisfied suburbs would be our uh, a version of, of a vaccine bounce. These are people who have no real uh, um, money pressure, who have managed to save money uh, during the pandemic and who are now uh, benefiting 
uh, from being fully uh, vaccinated. And I think their vote was somewhat reflected uh, in the by-election in the relatively high a percentage of votes got by Fine Gael. I mean, government parties rarely win by-elections. And in the context, I know Fine Gael were all in and they threw the kitchen sink and everything at it. But James Gagan did, did comparatively well in the context of how government parties perform in by-elections. But I think it could also be seen in the votes for other uh, candidates, uh, uh, namely uh, Ivana Bacic. You know, I know Labour are in opposition, uh, but they are a party of government and are, uh, is a party that aspires to government. And I think a little of that could be uh, seen. So just in relation to a vaccine balance, I, I, I think it's kind of a little bit too early. That was the only electoral contest that we've had. And it's a little bit too early uh, for us to say if that is going to be a big component in relation to how domestic politics plays out over the next uh, few years. I think the big test uh, in terms of the government, I'm probably diverting a little bit away from the original question now, uh, will be uh, to see how it performs uh, when uh, the, uh, all the COVID payments begin uh, to uh, peter out and the economy will be asked to kind of begin recovering under its own steam and how well it manages that transition uh, will be a, a big test uh, of, of whether or not uh, its, uh, its, 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 uh, its uh, COVID-19 uh, response uh, uh, has been successful or, or not. And that's been the big dominant thing. I mean, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and the Greens, I mean, 90% of their work is in relation to dealing with the pandemic so if they are successful in dealing with it or are, are, are seen as successful in dealing with it, I think there will have to be some kind of bounce uh, for all three parties in relation to that. Otherwise, you, you think that the electorate has become entirely cynical uh, in its view of politics and of politicians. And God forbid, God forbid that that should happen. That's as many questions as we can get through within our, our allotted time span. But I just want to ask you, Jen, seeing as you, you know, you're just back from your holidays, people may think, of course, that, you know, because the, the Oireachtas has now risen and there, there's no official, uh, politics for the next, what, eight weeks or, or so that, that you guys are just off. You just got a, got a long break <laughs> or anything. But as you mentioned, you're just back. So what does a political correspondent do during these dog days of July and August? Is there much, is there much in the way of stories? Oh my God. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just laughing because the dread in my heart and soul at the summer ahead. No, I'm only joking. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. It's very exciting. No, like usually in summer, um, obviously the, the courts are away, the dolls away. Um, the TDs are in their constituencies working very hard, certainly not on holidays, certainly not in the DOS. Um, so they say, but for us, like normally, like you still have to fill the pages in a newspaper, you still have to fill a podcast. Um, and we would tend to kind of maybe get stuck into a couple more of the issues rather than following on diary stuff. Like that could really involve anything from spending your afternoon reading a PQ, like going through your FOIs. Um, and to be honest with you, last summer, um, you know, I was getting ready for the having my summer list ready and making sure we had stories for for the summer and the pandemic. We had it, you know, we we're coming out of the summer and things really, really were started to get kind of tricky in August. And there wasn't a quiet day throughout the whole summer. And, you know, obviously we had uh, the cabinet being set up and all the various disasters that happened to Micheál Martin uh, in that period. And it was just bananas last year. And I actually do expect the same this year. So I, I don't think we're going to have a silly season. Um, I think uh, August might be particularly difficult in terms of the pandemic uh, if the cases continue as they are. So there, there really generally won't be a quiet day. And I'll be very busy if the news editor is ringing me and wondering where I am. I'm, I'm on a job. I'm not in the garden. 
We can always do the podcast from our gardens if the weather continues in the, in in this way. Although I think the sound of seagulls around my place might be a might be a bit same, too much of a distraction. Yeah, same, same. Um, total giveaway, total giveaway. But we will be continuing to podcast through silly season or no silly season right throughout the summer. We won't stop, so we will continue. But thanks for the moment to Pat, to Jen, and to Harry, also to our producer Declan Conlon. Uh, we're going to be back very soon indeed. And do remember that you can mail us with your thoughts and your questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until that next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.